Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're bringing you some scientific tales, literally, as we explore the genetics of dog breeds and behaviour. Is there a gene for being a very good dog or having a boopable snoot? And what happened over tens of thousands of years to turn a fearsome wolf into a pug in a party hat? Once upon a time, some wolves made the decision to get a bit closer to those strange-smelling humans in their neighbourhood. A few tens of thousands of years later, and dogs are a fundamental part of life in most cultures around the world, whether as working animals or as pets. As a confirmed dog person, I've been wanting to make an episode exploring what we know about the genetics of our four-legged friends for a very long time, and I make no apologies for any dog puns in this episode. So I sent our stay-at-home roving reporter Georgia Mills off for a virtual walkies via the medium of Zoom to follow up some expert leads. First, Georgia caught up with Eleanor Carson at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and the Broad Institute. She and her team are looking into all aspects of dog genetics, from discovering what gives different breeds their distinctive traits, to finding out how genetic variations contribute to psychological characteristics. They're the lab behind Darwin's Dogs, part of the bigger Darwin's Ark project, which is working with pet owners and gathering doggy DNA samples from all over the world to understand what makes dogs tick and get insights into animal and human health. And, as she tells Georgia, she's also interested in the question of how we got from wolves to dogs and what happens when wolves and dogs start interbreeding again. Plus, solving the mystery of the missing ancient American doggos. But before Georgia got to asking her about her work, she had to address a confusing issue. That Eleanor appeared with a cat on the video call, rather than a dog. Yes, you know, it turns out cats also like novelty, so I don't usually sit in this particular room, and so she thinks it's pretty much the coolest thing that's happened probably this week is me sitting in this room to do this this podcast. <laughs> I have to say, when I saw the cats in your Zoom background, I was like, hang on, wrong animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's everybody always thinks I must be like a super big dog person because I study dogs, and it's like, I mean, I like dogs. But I actually got into it because they're an incredible genetic model system rather than because <laughs> I'm like all about dogs. Nice. And do you have a favorite dog? It's probably my sister's dog, Besco. Um, she's a total nutcase of a dog, super high energy, anxious about everything and really sweet. Um, she's a wonderful dog. What breed of dog is she? I actually do know what her genetics are because we have sequenced <laughs> Besco so many times at this point in time. So Besco became our like baseline test dog. So every time we were trying out a new technology in science, when you're trying something new, the first thing you want to do is look at something you already know about so that you can make sure the new thing you're doing is actually working. And so every time we switched the genetic technology we were doing, I would send my sister a text message and be like, hey, can I come get us another saliva swab from Besco? Because uh, <laughs> we want to test, test her DNA again and see if this thing is actually working. So Besco is a total mutt. She's a mix of a lot of different breeds and I'd have to check exactly what she is. Um, but she, like a lot of the different mixed breed dogs that we looked at is many different breeds. It's not just one or two or three. We'll probably get into this later, but can you just take a dog's genome and then be like, oh, that's a bit of Dalmatian. Oh, that's a bit of Terrier. Is it clear what they are from their genetic profile? Yes, you can. Um, there's a couple of things about it that make it a little bit difficult. 
obviously there's algorithms and fancy technology involved in, on, you know, kind of changing a whole string of ACs, Gs, and Ts into this is ancestry from this breed, and then this other piece is ancestry from this other breed. So that's the kind of technical challenge. But there's a logistics challenge as well, which is that it's not like when you're looking in the genome, it's like written in there, you know, this is German Shepherd DNA. So the only reason you call that DNA German Shepherd DNA is because you have a set of German Shepherds that you've compared it to and realize that that DNA matches German Shepherd DNA closer than any of the other breeds you looked at. But that means that if you don't have any reference data from a breed, you don't have it in what we call our breed panel, we can't ever find it. Like, and we might end up getting it wrong just because it's matching to a, it's trying to match to something and it'll find out whatever the closest match is. And if the actual breed isn't in there, then you can't match to it. And it might make a guess at something else. So let's talk a bit about the origin story of dogs. So this is a fascinating topic for loads of people, but the the genetics must give a whole different angle. So where did dogs actually come from? You're just going to start with all the really hard questions. (laughs) So this has ended up being a much harder question than a lot of people anticipated it would be for a couple of different reasons. So the short answer is we don't know yet. And it's not like we haven't been trying to figure this out. There's a lot of scientists that are really interested in this question, partly because, you know, we all love dogs, but also because dogs are kind of part of the story of human history as well. And so learning something about dogs actually tells us something about the people, too, because, you know, the whole point of domestication is that they're living in, you know, with or near people. So what we know right now is that dogs were probably domesticated around 15,000 years ago, but it might have been longer ago. It's not very clear when because it's like thousands of years, you know, plus or minus. And we're not really sure where at this point in time. And I think we will get better at figuring that out over time, but it's just ended up being a really challenging question. And in order to answer it, we basically need more DNA from ancient dogs. So for a long time, people tried to figure out this question by looking at modern dogs. And that is really hard because there's this really interesting feature to dog history. So there's two really interesting parts of dog history that made this really hard. The first is that the wolves that dogs were domesticated from don't appear to be around anymore. And so when people first started trying to figure out when dogs were domesticated, they compared them to modern wolves and they got these really ridiculously long ago dates, you know, 60,000 years ago, which is well before there were any humans around to domesticate them. So that would have been really strange. And the reason that happened was that they were actually probably picking the the split between those two lineages of wolves rather than the split between dogs and wolves. And so they'd found something that just didn't find the thing they thought they were looking at. The other reason why it's really complicated is actually the breeds. And so what happens when you create a dog breed, and the dog breeds for the most part are only a few hundred years old. So mid-1800s, Victorian England got very excited about dog breeds. And that's when the idea of a dog breed, which is a, a group of dogs that are reproductively isolated. So those dogs breed with each other, but they don't ever breed with dogs outside of that population. And what happens is you lose all the genetic diversity outside of that. And after that, you only have the genetic diversity that was in those 20 dogs or 30 dogs or however many it was. And so that kind of almost removes the history before that. And so in a lot of ways, the information we need to figure out the history of dogs got taken out of the population when they created the breeds. And so now that we're actually looking at a lot of breeds, but even more importantly, we're looking at the non-breed dogs, I think we're going to be able to get a lot more information about what happened in the time before the breeds in dog history. 
Wow. So there's it's almost a two stage story of domestication. You've got this long history of these mysterious dogs that we had for thousands of years. Then the Victorians come up and muddle everything together. And that's that's the genetics we see today is is sort of hiding the original story. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's one of those interesting kind of questions of, of scientific bias that comes from you know, it's not science, it's our cultures, and we don't realize what we're doing. Because a lot of the early dog genetics was done by people in the United States, Canada, and Europe. And in those places, they don't really have non-breed dogs. Most of the dogs are either purebred dogs or they're mixes of purebred dogs. And so I don't think it really occurred to us when we were starting our research that by studying the breeds, we were missing most of the dogs on the planet because those weren't the dogs that were in our world and we just didn't think about it. Right, and, and the, the fact that all these dogs we have are a small proportion, we've lost a load, like, did that? Did they just get bred out, these other types of dogs? Did they just die off? Because it's, it's a large amount of dogs can't have been under sort of Victorian pet owner control. So what happened to those dogs? You know, this is, I find this to be a really interesting question because of exactly what you said. Like we got so focused on the breeds, but the idea that all the dogs on the planet could possibly be descended from these small number of dogs in just a few places on the on the planet where breeds were created is just kind of silly when I started to think about it. And so there's two different parts of this. The first is just that there are lots of dogs that we have never even looked at the genetics of that are still around. And I think now dog geneticists are making a much more concerted effort to go out and find those dogs and sequence them and get their genetic information into the databases we're using so that we're not so biased towards the purebred dogs. But I think the other thing that's really interesting is that some of them did seem to vanish. So there's this really interesting story that came out a few years ago about the ancient American dogs. And this is one of those classic, like once you think about it, it is a huge puzzle because there were always dogs in the Americas for as, you know, pretty much as long as there were people in the Americas, there were dogs in the Americas. And there were millions of them, and they were everywhere. Yet somehow, when the Europeans showed up, they seemed to have vanished. And we don't know how that happened. Vanished in the sense that if they had been there and the Europeans had just brought dogs in and they'd mixed with the local dogs, you would expect that dogs in the United States today when we looked at their genetics, dogs anywhere in the Americas, when we looked at their genetics, we would expect them to be a mix of ancient American dog and European ancestry dogs. And that was, I think, kind of what we thought we would find when we started looking into this. Uh, but the study a few years ago, which I wasn't actually involved in doing the work for, but I just found really interesting, so I wrote a little editorial about it for the journal, found that if there is ancient American DNA in American dogs today, it's vanishingly small percentage you know, we're kind of talking about 2%, 3%. It's just not very much. And so there's this kind of big question now as to what happened to all of those ancient American dogs. How did they disappear so quickly once the Europeans showed up? Wow. And are there any theories at the moment? Oh, there are all sorts of theories out there. I have to say that, that as a scientist, my bias is towards the same thing that happened to the people in the Americas. I mean, we know that when the Europeans showed up, they brought all of these terrible diseases with them that the people that were living in the Americas then hadn't been exposed to before, and they died in absolutely devastatingly high numbers from those diseases. And so I wonder whether the same thing happened to the dogs with the European dogs bringing something in or multiple things in maybe that were very dangerous to them. And if the people were kind of going through this, this absolutely terrible time 
it might be that no records of the fact that the dogs were dying as well really got left behind. Wow. And and going back to the domestication of dogs and specifically wolves, I know like comparisons to in behavior terms between dogs and wolves has led, led us down loads of blind alleys and we've made loads of mistakes based on thinking they're the same. When we look at the genetics, apart from it telling us they split a while ago, is there anything we can tell about the genetics of their domestication or anything interesting that's come up between comparing dogs with modern wolves? Dogs and wolves are very different animals. And it's one of the things in the kind of dog-wolf genetics world that really fascinates me the most. There's some very, very clear differences between dogs and wolves. So you can compare wolf genomes to dog genomes and look for where the differences are. The problem with this is that they're two completely separate populations. And most of the genome isn't really functionally important, but it acquires mutations over time. So because they're two separate populations, when you compare them, you see lots and lots, millions of differences between their genomes, most of which don't have anything to do with why a dog is a dog and a wolf is a wolf. It's just these random changes in the DNA. So what we're trying to do, and we have a really exciting project right now is we're working with sanctuaries that house wolf-dog mixes. So these are animals that where their genomes are part wolf and part dog. And so we're studying their behavior to try and figure out whether they behave more like a wolf or more like a dog. And then we're looking in their genomes. And basically, we want to find places in their genomes, genes where the wolf-dog hybrids that act more like dogs look doggy, and ones that act more like wolves look wolfy. And that would suggest that that's a gene that's involved in the behavioral differences between those two populations. Oh, wow. And I've got to ask, getting DNA from a wolf or a wolfy dog, that's got to be a bit tricky. Yeah, so this, I should just point out here, the wolf-dog hybrid project, the entire thing has been a learning experience for me. I did a PhD and a postdoc that mostly involved analyzing data on computers, and there was nothing in my world that I touched because it was all virtual, to running my own research lab where all of a sudden we're studying wolf-dog hybrids, which I just thought was the coolest thing. And so the actual logistics of studying wolf-dog hybrids was entirely organized by Catherine Lord because she was the one that actually has experience and expertise in this. And so the system she came up with, so the ones that where the people that owned them were comfortable handling them could do saliva swabs on them. We never did them. But if the person that, that had the animal wanted to do a saliva swab, they could do that. And some of the wolf-dog hybrids are incredibly doggy and are totally able to be handled. But there are some of them that you can't do a saliva swab on for obvious reasons. A saliva swab requires sticking a swab into their mouth, and that's not always an easy thing with an animal that you don't completely trust. And so we came up with this alternate system. So the other, another thing that you can get DNA out of, in addition to saliva, is hair. And so we came up with this fantastic system where the wolf-dog hybrids live in these enclosures that are usually very large enclosures that have a chain-link fence around them. So that's the fence that has those kind of diamond holes in it. And so what we would do is we would get one of those, people have probably seen them, they have them for dogs, those prong collars that have that are very controversial where they have the, the metal pokey sticks on the inside of them. But what we would do is we would actually take one of those prong collars and we would unclip it so that it was a long, you know, thin thing and feed it through the chain link fence so that the prongs were poking out. And then we would spray it apparently either with deer urine or Chanel number no. five, either worked <laughs> equally well, which was 
one of the biggest surprises in my research life, I have to say. <laughs> and the wolf-dog hybrids would get incredibly excited about this and come running over and rub endlessly against this prong collar because they thought it just felt so good to scratch themselves on that. They thought it was wonderful. And then we would just pull it back out again because it was thin and we had the chain link fence and just pull these like huge clumps of hair off it. So once we figured out that system, we had no trouble getting DNA from those hybrids that we couldn't actually get saliva swabs from. Wow, Chanel number five. You never you never know who you'll attract if you spray. I mean, if you're going to hang out with a wolf-dog hybrid, apparently that's really what you want to be wearing. <laughs> Eleanor Carlson from the Broad Institute in Massachusetts. You can find out more about her work at carlsonlab.org, that's Carlson with two S's, and the Darwin Dogs Project, including the awesomely cute Dog of the Month gallery, is at darwinsark.org. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Jessica Heckman, the self-styled dog zombie, works with Eleanor Carlson and her team studying the brains and genes of dogs to understand canine behaviour including trying to figure out why certain dog breeds behave in certain ways. She's also the owner of three dogs, Fitz the Border Collie, Dashiell the English Shepherd and Jenny, a genetic pick-and-mix, some of whom you'll probably hear making cameo appearances in this interview. And as far as she's concerned, based on her own personal experience, breed certainly does influence behaviour. The Border Collie is very Border Collie, like he likes to herd things, we're having an issue right now where he doesn't want the English Shepherd to be allowed to leave the back porch. So there's just this narrow exit from the porch. And so the Border Collie wants to control the exit and not let the other dogs off, right? Because it's that's a, a nice narrow opening where he can control what they do. The English <laughs> Shepherd is also very, very smart, but a lot less intense and a lot less focused on herding because they're more general purpose farm dogs. So I do see that. And then Jenny, it's interesting. She's, I said, she's a mixy mix. She's got a lot of stuff in her. And so who knows, you know, I've actually had her ancestry tested and so I know what's in there. And so it's an interesting question of whether I'm seeing what I want to see as the result of the test or whether it's really <laughs> because of her ancestry. She's 25% Labrador retriever and she is very interested in food and in toys, which are both Labrador retriever traits. And she's 12% Samoyed, and I can see that. That's more of a physical, like I can see it in her soft coat. But she also has this distinctive, like, woo-woo-woo way that she barks, um, which is not how most <laughs> labs bark, but is more typical of how a Samoyed would bark. So I, I see it. And then my boss, Eleanor Carlson, would say, oh, you're just telling yourself stories. Amazing. So how do you go about studying dog behavior and its relationship with genetics? So the behavior, we have a website with a lot of behavior surveys on it. I think we have about 220 questions that people can answer right now. And we have people who have pet dogs um, and also people who have working dogs, actually, who can come to that website and answer those questions about their dogs. And that in itself is a really useful data set because they also tell us things about how old their dog is and what the dog's breed is. And so we can start doing analyses and we're in fact about to publish a paper with our first 
analyses of, you know, do we see different behaviors by breed? Do we see different behaviors by age, by size, things like that? Then we also, when we have the funding, we can pay for people to have their dog sequenced. So that is, we would send them a kit and they would send us, use the kit to send us back some saliva. Actually, that would go directly to a sequencing laboratory, which sequences it. And then we can look to see, are there any, you know, if if we see a particular behavioral trait that we're interested in, then we can look and see, are there any particular places in the genome that correlate with that trait? I mean, I know a personality in genetics is quite a fraught topic in general. Is this easier or more difficult to study in dogs? The theory is that it's easier. <laughs> That's why we're doing it. And part of the theory has to do with basically with working dogs is that dogs have been under stronger selection pressure for behavior than humans, right? Humans are uh, free breeding, we hope. And dogs, we are choosing to put them together based on the traits that we want. And a lot of those traits are about morphology, right? So a lot of them, particularly in our pet dogs, are about what color the dog is, how big the dog is, and how long the dog's fur is. But both in the pet dogs, but even more so in the working dogs, there's selection pressure for how the dog behaves. And so we're hopeful that we'll be able to take a population of dogs that behave in one way and then compare them to a population of dogs that have been bred to behave in a different way and that we'll be able to see differences that way. But it is still requires a lot of dogs. So with humans, some of the recent behavioral studies, they're hitting sample sizes in the hundreds of thousands now. And we're hoping that we're only going to need maybe 10,000 dogs to get some good answers. But that doesn't mean that we're there yet, right? So we're still at around 2,000 dogs. So right now what we're doing is, well, with the 2,000 dogs, we can start looking for the easier stuff while we're collecting the information to look for the behavioral stuff. And so right now we're looking at things like genes related to size and ear carriage and white coat color and things like that, which are amenable at these sample sizes. And then we're collecting the information for later and doing the breed behavior studies and, and that kind of stuff. So you're aiming for a much bigger sample size, but are there any sort of personality gene stories that are starting to emerge at this stage? Yeah, um, we are seeing a couple of things like a spike for something like uh, woo-woo barking, we call woo-woo barking. And I, <laughs> and I mentioned earlier that, that's, that my dog Jenny does that specific woo-woo bark. So we're finding some genes related to that. Uh, we are mostly starting to see some behaviors that do really depend on breed. So, for example, border collies do come out as being much, much more biddable than other breeds, meaning that they are more likely to pay attention to their handler and want to do what the handler wants them to do. So that's something that we are hoping that we're going to be able to use sort of the overlap of breed with the genomics of, you know, where stuff is in the DNA to try to find some answers. But we're not getting any really strong hits for behavior yet. Oh, I, lo- I love the woo-woo bark. I know exactly what you mean. That really <laughs> sweet, like... <laughs> yeah, I say that Jenny says woo and my Border Collie Fitz actually says wow. And then it's only the English Shepherd Dash who actually says woof. And and you mentioned earlier, like working dogs are a big part of this uh, this question. They they have this like incredibly specialized behavior. So 
do you think this is will this will be easier to pick apart the sort of the the unique code for like uh, you mentioned herding behavior in in sheepdogs? Yeah, I really hope so. So as I mentioned, we're starting with the guide dog schools, and that's because they have really gotten their act together to organize and standardize on recording the behavior for many generations of their dogs, again, in a standardized way so that they're all sort of using the same set of questions to say, how does the dog behave in this situation? How does the dog behave in that situation? So it's this lovely synergy of both that the dogs are under selective pressure for particular behavior and that they have this standardized assessment so that we can trust that the answers for this school and that school are somewhat similar. So I would love for us to start expanding into other types of working dogs. I mean, we're going to have to, and we fully intend to, but to take your example of herding dogs, and there's definitely a strong genetic component to the ability to, to herd, but the people who are working with herding dogs do not have the same standardized way of assessing dogs. So we're going to have to figure that out. Like, what are we going to do? Are we going to go to herding trials and take the dogs who succeed the most at a herding trial and compare them to dogs who do less well? But a lot of that, again, is due to how they've been trained, right? So we're just, we're going to have to try to figure out how to do those phenotype assessments, the behavioral phenotype assessments. That's the really big challenge there. And so what are the goals for this study? What are you what are you hoping to achieve once you have your samples and once you start to get a clearer picture of what's going on? So two things. Um, one thing is that we really want to be able to give back to the people who are breeding these working dogs. So we really want to be able to help them set up what is known as genomic estimated breeding values. And what that means is that you would be able, when you have a litter of hopeful guide dog puppies just born, you'd be able to genetically test each of them. And we'd give back an assessment of, you know, this one is probably going to do better on the confidence trait that you've been studying. And this one's probably going to do better on the what they call body sensitivities. So whether they mind if there's a harness on them, and this one's going to do better at biddability, paying attention to what the person wants them to do. And then hopefully they'd be able to take those scores and say, okay, we have an idea of at least genetically where these puppies are starting off from. And we know that that's, you know, there's going to, this isn't going to be fully predictive and that there's going to be environmental influence, but then they'd be able to make some decisions right there. And so they'd be able to say, well, based on this test, this puppy looks like they're going to do really well. And so we definitely want to hang on to this one and, and go ahead and train them for the full year for the guide dog program. This puppy, you know, hasn't been doing so well in our assessments. And also the genetic test came back saying maybe he's lower confidence. Um, so putting those pieces of information together, this is one that we're going to redirect out to be adopted out as a pet. That's really important to the guide dog schools who put a lot of money and energy into raising up a lot of dogs that not all of which succeed either as guide dogs or as as breeders, right? And so they'd really like to know earlier, is this is this a dog that we want to hang on to? So we're hoping to give back in that way. To save the dog the humiliation of failing guide dog school. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that could be anthropomorphism. <laughs> but I think it's it's certainly fair to say that if a dog is going to be a pet, shouldn't it have the the luxury of being able to be placed in that pet home at eight weeks of age rather than at one year of age? So I think it is better for the dog's welfare for them to be able to be put into a job that they're going to be successful at. And you mentioned there was a second application on top of this one. Yeah. So 
our hope is that we can start to understand what is different in the brain of a dog, for example, a dog who's very confident or a dog who's very not confident, say very anxious all of the time. With genetics, the hope is that, you know, if you were studying confidence, you would find some versions of particular genes that make a dog more or less confident. And then the next step would be to try to figure out what those genes actually do in the brain, what their function is. So I think the best illustration of this is to talk about some work that Carlson Lab did recently, um, but it's this past work, looking at compulsive disorder in dogs. So dogs do have uh, compulsive disorder, very similar to what we call obsessive compulsive disorder in humans. So what that looks like in a dog, one thing is tail chasing. So a little bit of tail chasing can be normal and not to be something to be concerned about. But these compulsive dogs are doing it so long that it really interferes with their quality of life. So they'll spin around chasing their tail until they fall down, until they're too dizzy to stand, and then they'll get up and do it all over again. So that's sort of what a compulsive behavior would look like. Other ones are things like flank sucking. So the dog sucks on its own flank and they can do this for so long that they actually injure themselves. Or in border collies, a typical thing that you would see is that they are obsessive about lights or shadows and just spend their day really focusing on chasing lights or shadows around the house. So Carlson Lab, as I said, did this work looking at obsessive disorder in dogs and found a couple of genes coded for proteins that are involved in a particular type of synapse in the brain. So a synapse is where two neurons in the brain come together and they need to be together to send messages back and forth. And the proteins that were involved in canine compulsive disorder were involved in holding the two neurons together so that, you know, that binding them together so that that synapse stayed strong. So then damaging one of those would affect compulsive disorder in dogs. And what was interesting, so, you know, we found that, but then a couple of years later published a paper which has this, this beautiful figure in it um, where there's a drawing of the synapse and illustrations of where the, these proteins um, that are coded for by these genes are part of the synapse and those are labeled dog. And then there's also other proteins involved in the holding the synapse together and those are labeled human and those are from other papers where they were associated with obsessive compulsive disorder in humans, but still part of the same system. And then there's others still part of the same system labeled mouse, and they're from yet other studies that found an association between compulsive disorder in mice and you know still other genes that code for proteins that are involved in this same system. And so basically then you can start to see that the system itself is very important in compulsive disorder. So it may be that the cause of compulsive disorder in these three different species is totally different genes, but the genes are all involved in the same system. And when you put it all together like that, you start to see the importance of this particular system. And again, that would then hopefully help other laboratories start working towards finding specifically targeted therapies, either medications or behavioral approaches. That's Jessica Heckman. And you can check out her work at dogzombie.com. One of the most important elements of a dog is its nose. And it is very important indeed to boop that snoot. But when it comes to the length of the snoot itself, from long-nosed greyhounds to flat-faced pugs, genetics has a big part to play. 
Jeff Schoenbeck from the Roslin Institute at the University of Edinburgh has made it his mission to understand how genetic variations contribute to the wide range of shapes and sizes of dog skulls using CAT scans as well as lab tests. I primarily work on companion animal genetics. I would say 80% of what we do in my group is concentrating on trying to understand the genetic underpinnings of skeletal morphology and health in dogs. And we also dabble in cats to a lesser extent and some other species. But we love animals. And so we're really trying to understand at its heart the genetics of, of health and longevity and just healthy living, let's put it that way. And you, and you mentioned morphology, like dogs are quite, I mean, ev- everyone knows dogs are a bit weird, right? Because you've got a Great Dane in one place, you've got a Chihuahua in another, you've got Greyhounds, you've got the massive boxes. They're very, very different looking from each other. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why I fell in love with dog genetics. Is it, It's exactly that, this disparity in sizes and skull shapes and even, you know, I'm not a hair person, but, you know, the the differences of hair patterns and furnishings, you know, does a dog have long eyebrows or short eyebrows? Are the ears upright and pricked or do they flop over or do they drag on the ground like a basset hound? It's so (laughs) varied and uh, it sounds very esoteric. You know, why are we studying these these ridiculous traits like ear length and face length and so on and so forth? But they have a developmental underpinning. And and what we can learn from what has caused these differences actually has, uh, we believe, and many other folks believe as well, relevance to human health and medicine. And so how do you go about studying this? In the early days when I was turned on to dogs' morphologies and I was working at a place where dogs weren't on allowed on the research campus. And so what I'd have to do is go to museums that have these, you know, dusty bone collections. And, you know, I would go or the assistant that was working with me at the time would would go to these collections and we would measure uh, dog bones from known breeds of dogs. And that would kind of give us like a, a breed average, a breed metric of face length or the overall size of a, a particular dog breed skull. And we, we made a, an assumption that it was representative of the dog whose DNA that we acquired at dog shows or acquired through veterinary hospitals. However, our modus operandi has changed because I'm now based at a, next door to a veterinary school. And the beautiful thing here is we have a hospital for small animals It's a referral hospital, so it has a lot of specialized kit. One of those bits of specialized kit is a computed tomography scanner. Every day at the hospital for small animals, there's patients, dogs coming in that have uh, some kind of medical reason to be scanned. So we're able to take that data and computationally reconstruct the bone of interest skull, look at it in 3D space, and do all of our sophisticated measurements and Um, morphometrics, if you will. At the same time, because that dog has been administered and typically they're under sedation, um, there's a little bit of blood work that's usually done for these dogs when they're getting their diagnostics. Well, that's anything that's left over from after they do all their tests and, and so forth. We get that little bit of residual. We can turn it over to DNA. Now we have DNA from, and the physical 
you know, morphometrics for one patient, it broadens our, our ability to conduct our study. And we're doing it passively. It's really just taking data that's being produced passively, and we can use it to map all types of skeletal traits. Fantastic. So has anything started to come out of your uh, your data sets yet? Yeah. So so the first thing that, that came out was just it kind of the data recapitulated some of the things that were already known. So for example, years ago, there were studies looking at body size and what are the genetic underpinnings of that. And some of the big players that came out of those studies, like insulin, like growth factor one and HMGA2 and SMAD2, these different genes that are suspected of causing these differences in body size among dogs. Well, they were already known, but they emerged in our, out of our data very, very quickly. And then the thing that we're really interested in, because we're, we are basically studying skull morphology is this association that emerged on chromosome one. Here again, this association was known for a long time. It's known that this particular region on chromosome one is what's responsible for a reduction in face length. So when you look at an English bulldog or a French bulldog or a pug or a Boston Terrier, all these dogs share this common signal on chromosome one. And it's, so it's been known and the region's been mapped and there's some genes that were suspected, but the mechanism, the thing, the mutation that underlies that reduction in face length just was never uh, mapped. And possibly because of this breed average, coupling breed average phenotypes with genetics. But here with our one-to-one data where we have the phenotype and the genetics from the same individual, we can really find map with confidence in our population data set. And what we found is this little snippet of DNA. It's a transposon that inserted itself within a gene, not, not the portion of the gene that creates protein or encodes protein, but between you know those portions within genes, there's segments of DNA that kind of intersperse the important coding parts. Well, this little bit of DNA at some point back in breeding history inserted itself into this non-coding portion, and yet somehow is able, when we looked at it in further detail, what we found out is it somehow causes the gene to misplace. Yeah, every gene, or many genes, I should say, have to create a temporary copy out of what we call RNA. And it's from that RNA then proteins made. But what we found is with the dogs that have this little insertion, that temporary copy is kind of miswritten. It's scrambled, if you will. And not only is it scrambled, but we find that the copy that's made that precedes production of protein is reduced further. So we strongly suspect this gene, which turns out to be involved in bone development, is what's causing that reduction in face length in pugs and French bulldogs and English bulldogs and so forth. We don't know if it's the whole story because this, this little snippet of DNA that inserted itself, it could be that it's projecting effects elsewhere in the region that have gone undetected. So there, there's still some questions mechanistically what's going on, but we're getting there. Right. So this is, it's not even a gene. It's like a tiny little bit of DNA jumped into a gene. And this, we think, could have such a big impact on dog face shape. Yeah. Yeah. So the little bit of DNA that jumped in, in this case, this flavor of little bit of DNA is called a line element. And these transposons themselves, another name for them is a transposon, it carries two genes, basically, so it can make copies of itself. 
And so some people think that these line elements, which also occur in you and I and many other species, that they're the drivers of evolution because they kind of slowly, you know, they make a copy of themselves, reinsert themselves somewhere else. And maybe when they do that, sometimes it's a little bit sloppy. It carries a bit of DNA with it from the, the host. Perhaps it's, you know, it's slowly scrambling the genome. And over time, this gives, you know, genetic diversity that can be selected upon. And, you know, in dogs, there's a school of thought that perhaps dogs are more active, that they have more of these transposons that are active. And this is perhaps could explain their amenability to selection, this plasticity and morphology. I think the jury's still out, but certainly there's quite a few different traits that are caused simply by these jumping genes, these transposons that occur in dogs. And with the dogs, um, the genetic story behind the flat faces, so we're getting answers. Why, why is this research important? So what it's also well known about these flat face breeds is they have enormous challenges, health challenges. So when we talk about animal welfare, dogs like English bulldogs, pugs, they have among some other, you know, pretty terrible conditions that can occur, they have difficulties breathing by and large. And I think there's there's a lot of evidence that suggests it's that, you know, this reduction in face length that can increase air resistance. So when the dog breathes in and breathes out, perhaps, you know, all these bones have squished in. And not only is that bone squished in, but that the, the soft tissue that surrounds the bone, the, the, the nasal passages, the epithelium in the skin, well, that's kind of stayed the same. So the bone is squished in, the same amount of soft tissues all around there. So you take a, a breathing passage, like an airway, and it's secluded, it's, it's shrunken down. And so it's much more difficult for a dog to breathe in and breathe out. And so many of these dogs are, you know, gasping for air. And it has, I should say, there are, it's a, quite a, a bit of variation, even within breeds, how severely affected a dog is. So we want to understand, you know, what can we do? How can we advise breeders to at least make some changes, either in terms of the physical, the morphology of the dog, to alleviate this problem. And so that that is one aspect that we have our, you know, that we're studying closely. Going back to human health, we know that brachycephaly, that's the medical term that we use to describe dogs with flat face. Well, that terminology itself is borrowed from human medicine. So children can be diagnosed with brachycephaly. It occurs in, in a number of different syndromes where uh, the outward face growth arrests early. And so we think, you know, by studying dogs, you know, it's almost a, a two for one in the sense that, you know, well, we want to address the, the animal welfare aspect. And at the same time, whatever we learn in terms of, under you know, from the mechanisms and the genetics of dogs, well, obviously we have to turn our attention back to human medicine because there, there are many children who are born with a craniofacial anomaly and the genetic diagnosis is still missing. So we'd like to think that what we learn in dogs can also inform, you know, human genetics as well. Jeff Schoenbeck from the University of Edinburgh, speaking with Georgia Mills. That's all for now. Thanks very much to Georgia Mills for her dogged reporting and a special big hug for Ferdy, my parents' idiot cocker spaniel, who I haven't seen in far too long thanks to lockdown. 
Do follow us on Twitter at geneticsunzip to see his gorgeous face. And please do share pictures of your own very good boys and very good girls with us to help cheer us through the February greyness. We'll be back next time taking a look at genetic superheroes and why there might be a couple of superhero traits lurking within us all. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, links, transcripts, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by the waggy-tailed Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Thank you.